Hi, everyone. I'm so glad that you've joined us today. Uh, you probably recognize these two, Sam and Frodo, the two hobbits in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, they'd been struggling along on their perilous journey toward Mount Doom. They were exhausted. They were confused and desperately searching for direction and hope when Sam asked this profound question. He says, Frodo, I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. See, they became aware in that moment they were part of an unfolding story that was bigger than they were. And here's the thing. We are too. We're all living our lives within some controlling story, whether you're conscious of it or not. Some of you have fallen into a broken story of shame or regret, a story that traces back to some fatal flaw in you or someone close to you. Some of, some of you feel a bit out of control and that your story is indelibly tied to someone else's story, almost like you're being held captive by their behaviors and decisions. But every one of us is, is living out some kind of a story. And that dominant story becomes the framework that, that helps you to make sense of your life and interpret reality. Your dominant story becomes the lens through which you see the world. It provides the blueprint for how you should live in it. And above all, it gives you your very sense of identity. Now, the task of every Christian is to let God's story become the controlling story of our lives. His story gives shape and texture to our hopes and dreams and purposes in life. You see, you're not here by random chance, sentenced to live out a meaningless existence on a blue spinning planet. You were made to walk in step with God's spirit into a story that's far bigger than you. Uh, no one says it better than Paul in Galatians 2.20 where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So you see, God's gospel narrative is the one that makes sense of the world around us, but it also makes sense of our own lives. And once you fall into it, it's a story that changes every part of you. And it's a story that, that you not only live, but it's a story that you have to tell to others. So last week, we started a new series called Future Church, and I mentioned that we're heading into a season of transition at Grace, from a megachurch assimilation model to a missional multiplication model, and we're rethinking everything. And one of the main things that we've been working on is a, is a new scorecard. How do we measure uh, discipleship outcomes and not just church attendance? One of the main innovations that we've been working on is just naming our dream disciple at Grace. What kind of disciples of Jesus do we want to produce here in order to reach this region with the gospel? Now, this conversation started by looking at what we call our local predicament. What are some of the issues that our Erie region is facing right now from a spiritual standpoint? And after a lot of conversation and investigation, we, we summarized that by saying Erie is plagued by some broken narratives. There's an insecurity about Erie that just, frankly, isn't warranted. You look at some of our slogans, it's okay to love Erie, and the mistake on the lake, and I could go on. Kids who grew up here think they need to get away from Erie to make something of themselves. This is a broken narrative. Erie's also change resistant. Look at any new initiative that tries to come through town and it's an uphill fight the whole way. We're stuck in our ways, we dig in our heels against all new things. And then our community is fractured. Like there's disunity and territorialism that defines us from churches to businesses to social agencies. There are, there's racial fracturing, there's socioeconomic fracturing. There are these invisible lines drawn all over our region that people are not inclined to cross over. This is a, a broken narrative. Now, do you know what Jesus does with broken and dysfunctional narratives? 
He redeems them. The gospel tells a better story. The gospel writes over brokenness with a story of healing and hope, with a story of unity and restoration, with a story of justice and mercy. And this is true not just of community narratives, but it's true of the story of each individual. And so thousands of you would stand up and testify that your life is a trophy of the grace of Jesus. Jesus takes stories of addiction and and he rewrites wholeness. He takes stories of anxiety and he rewrites peace. He takes stories of sin and he rewrites forgiveness. And so we want to be a church who partners with Jesus to rewrite uh, the broken narratives all around us, to redeem them. This idea of God's story has permeated our thinking about the future of our church. In fact, that the new mission statement that we've been playing with and that we're pursuing now as a church, it says that we are a people who are following Jesus as we live out God's story every day, everywhere. Now, notice this is phrased in a way that it's not just something that the staff does. This is not just something that the elders do. This is an all-play, everyday mission that all of us can live out. But what does that look like? Well, this month we're exploring these four roles that we believe will help us to live out this better story. We're calling it our Dream Disciple at Grace, and we're taking one of these roles per week through the series. And they are a compassionate storyteller, a savvy follower, intentional friend, an embedded influencer. And today I want to talk about what it means to be this first one, a compassionate storyteller. And so each of these roles come with some questions, they come with accountability and some tools that are going to help you to embody that role. But compassionate storyteller means I know God's story, my place in it, and I'm motivated to tell the people in my life. Now, there are a few different aspects of that that I want to teach on today. And what I need to remind you of is that this is only the introduction of these things, okay? That there is much more to come. We're building out trainings around them and resources around them and tools around each of these roles, and they're going to be fully rolled out next fall. But we want to introduce you to these concepts now so that as we talk about them and as we seek feedback from you, that that you're going to have a framework for the conversation. And so this one says, I know God's story and my place in it. So we first need to talk about what is God's story. You see, something more beautiful and more powerful and more compelling is at work all around us. Something that we have little to do with, but still we're, we're in it. It's like Frodo finding himself in this bigger story. Our lives are intersecting with God's story. And we even play a role in that story, but we never overtake it, nor can we ever assume that ours is the ultimate narrative. God is the one who is writing this story of human history. Even the spelling of the word history reminds us that it's his story. He was writing it well before our time. He will continue writing it long after our time on this earth. But you are part of a bigger story which is why a lot of our our modern uh, sentiments can be so damaging. This message that we hear all the time that says, uh, you know, I only need me to make me complete, or or, I just need to love myself more, or I'm entitled to more for me, or I need to tell my truth, or I'm deserving, or my needs must be met at all times. This approach will always end in frustration and anxiety because actually the story that you're in is not about you. You have a role to play but you are not the main character. You play your part, but that's the only way that you're gonna ever find completeness and true satisfaction with your life is to find your story in God's story. 
And the pages of the Bible capture God's grand story, his dealings within history. And this is called the meta-narrative of the Bible. And there are five main movements of this meta-narrative. They are the creation, the fall, the redemption, the mission, and the restoration of all things. And you'll see these five themes cycling over and over again through the Bible. And actually, if you pay attention, you're gonna also see them repeated in all good stories, in movies and literature and musicals. So just watch Shawshank Redemption or watch Goodwill Hunting or Field of Dreams or read Les Miserables or Brothers Karamazov or every Disney story has the same basic plot arc. Take Beauty and the Beast, for example. It's a story about a prince who has everything. This is creation. But his heart grows cold and an enchantress casts a spell and turns him into a terrible beast. This is the fall. Until he finds someone who truly loves him, he'll be cursed to stay a monster forever. But he, he finds that love in Belle, who redeems him with a kiss. And they go on a mission together to, to live their lives. And ultimately, the prince is restored to royalty with the love of his life by his, his side. Creation, fall, redemption, mission, restoration. And, and Glenn Keane, who's an animator at Disney who worked on Beauty and the Beast, he, he sketched the characters of this story. He was guided, he said, by a verse of scripture. He shared that the Bible verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, inspired him as he was crafting the images from the scene where the beast turns back into the prince. Keen had, had this verse actually taped to, to his desk. He said, it says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So this meta-narrative of scripture is woven deeply into our fabric. We're drawn to these themes, not just because they make a great story, but because they're connected to our very soul. The, the story of scripture is the dominant story in which all other stories find their place, including yours and mine. So if you go into any rest stop along the highway anymore, or an airport, or a mall, you'll, you'll often see a big map with these prominent words that read, you are here. These maps are offered as a way to orient you to your surroundings, to get a big picture perspective. And so you look at, at the map and you find those magic words and suddenly you have your bearings. Don't you wish that life had one of these maps? Well, it does. It's called the Bible. You see, a lot of people read the Bible like a series of dogmas or a series of ethical mandates that we must comply to. But the Bible at its basic level is the story of God. And that's good because our life is also a story. See, life doesn't come at us like an algebra problem. It comes to us like a story, scene by scene, unfolding. Each day has a beginning and an end, and there are all sorts of characters, all kinds of different settings and plot twists. A year goes by like a chapter from a novel. Sometimes there's tragedy, and sometimes there's comedy, always there's drama. And the decision that we're all confronted with is this. Will, will you let the story that God is writing become the, the controlling story of your life? Can you say with Paul, it's no longer I who live for myself, but Christ who's living through me. And I'm, I'm, I'm living my life in this world in faith in the Son of God who gave his life for mine. And here's the deal. There are people in your life who don't know this story. In fact, they're stuck in the chapter of God's story called the fall, that they haven't found redemption yet. They don't know about their life's mission yet. They're not looking forward with hope to the restoration of all things yet. They're, they're living a broken story. But when you know God's story and you know your place in it, you can do this next part of the, this first dream disciple role that says, not only do I know God's story and my place in it, but it says I'm in, motivated to tell the people in my life 
Your story is important. And let me just remind you of three truths about your story. The first is that every Christian has a gospel story to tell. God has given you a unique story precisely so you can tell it. It's a story that involves some combination of your sin and God's redemption. And it doesn't have to be glamorous at all. A lot of people suffer from what I'd like to call story envy. <laughs> and they say things, well, my story isn't dramatic enough. Or I was never a, you know, a drug dealer or a murderer. You're tempted to just make stuff up. You're like, I can make something up. Like I was the Tony Soprano of Wesleyville, or you know, <laughs> I was the Walter White of Cambridge Springs, or whatever. But, but it doesn't need to be dramatic. There have been some, if you look back, there have been some holy ground moments in your life where God's story intersected with your story and your life has been changed because of it. And if you were to take that holy ground moment and put it into words, you have a gospel story that's worth telling. Here's the second truth. It's hard for people to argue with your story. You're just telling people, you're life as you experienced it. So, so people can argue about a lot of things. They can argue with you about the Bible, about the veracity of the resurrection. They can argue with you about doctrine or about church history. But your story is your story. And most people are longing to see an authentic example of true faith and life change. The third truth is that people who know you will trust your story. So you have a circle of people around you, family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, who have some level of trust in you. And trust is a valuable commodity in our culture. People don't trust much anymore. People don't trust the government. They don't trust the news. They don't trust the advertisers. They don't trust institutions. They don't trust politicians or pastors or salesmen. But there is a circle of people who trust you. And so trusted friends are, are one of the few reliable sources of information these days. When someone's looking for a mechanic or a dentist or a pediatrician, they're going to ask their friends or they're going to throw it out to their little social media network. Can somebody recommend a doctor for my kids to go to? Why would they do it that way? Well, because for the most important things in life, we listen to people we trust. Friends influence friends. And so your friends hearing your story of faith is going to have a much bigger impact on them, for example, than telling them to listen to one of my sermons. Why? Because they trust you. They probably don't trust me the same way. So I want to take you today over to a passage in 1 Peter 3.15. You can find your way there in your Bible or device. Peter's writing in 1 Peter to a church who's under heavy persecution. In fact, it's hard for us to even imagine their circumstances. But Peter offers some strong guidelines to these Christians about being prepared to talk to others about Jesus. And I think we can benefit from his words today. So I'm using the NIV version today, but Peter says these words. He says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I'd like to break it down this way. I'd like to talk about the who, what, and how of sharing your story. Remember, our dream disciple role is called compassionate storyteller. And really, this passage is about preparedness to share that story. But before I get into the practical who, what, and how, I want to start with Peter showing us here that really the starting place of all witnessing. In order to share your story effectively, he says you must first revere or set apart Jesus as Lord in your own heart. Peter says your heart needs to be ready. 
What does that mean to revere Christ in your heart? We often think of the heart as a place where we feel things. It's synonymous with emotions. In our culture, every teenage girl knows how to make, you know, the heart symbol. I don't even know how to do it. With your, your fingers, like when you're talking about Taylor Swift or Ariana Grande or whatever, and that heart has been reduced to the thing of teenage crushes. But that's not the, the heart that the Bible talks about. Biblically, the heart is the, the command center of the whole person. It doesn't just affect our feelings. It's the center of your actions. It's the center of your decisions. It's the seat of your your will and your emotions. And so when your heart is involved, it affects everything. It affects your thoughts and your words and your deeds, everything. And so, so that phrase that gets thrown around, invite Jesus into your heart, it's been misused and misunderstood for years. But it simply means that he takes over the controls. He's now calling the shots. And so in your heart is in the command central of your life. And so Peter says, revere Christ as Lord in this command center. Now, his words are phrased very purposely here. And so it's important for us to get what he's saying. These Christians that he's writing to, they were in an environment where it was treasonous to call anyone Lord. But he said to revere Christ as Lord. They could only call Caesar Lord. If a person stood up in a public arena and cried out, Jesus is God, no one would have been offended because the Romans and the Greeks believed in all kinds of gods. But if a Christian stood up and shouted, Jesus is Lord, he would be putting his very life at risk. Because you see, this title Lord means master, it means ruler, it means king. So Jesus is Lord means that Jesus is the one that I will obey and he has power over me. I will obey him above all others. And so revering Jesus as Lord means that my constant overriding goal is to obey him. Some have bought into the gospel of the hot sale, the gospel of the special offer, that if you you come to Jesus, that he's going to give you a bunch of stuff. But when we come to Jesus as Lord, we're saying, he's my ultimate authority. My story is now caught up in his story. He's calling all the shots. In fact, Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, why do you call me Lord, Lord? There's that phrase, Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say. It didn't even make sense to Jesus. So the starting place is giving Christ the highest place in your life, revering him as Lord in your heart. But now I want to talk about the who of sharing your story. As you're doing that and you're preparing to share your story, who do you share it with? Well, Peter says you should share it with everyone who asks. Notice what this assumes here. It assumes that your faith is going to be coming up in conversation because people are going to be asking you, hey, I noticed you were super patient with that coworker in our meeting today. Or I noticed that you bow your head before you eat in the lunchroom. Or I see on social media that you're really intentional about spending time with your kids. Or you used to make rude remarks about everyone and you've really toned that down. So some of you students, I, I, I never see you getting you know, wasted or messed up at the parties when everyone's out on Friday night. And when people start to notice and when people start to ask you questions like that. He says, be ready to share. I think he's also suggesting here that that we should be attuned to our opportunities. Not every moment is a moment to share your story. Don't ram your faith down people's throat, you know, if they don't want to hear it. But when the opportunity presents itself in conversation, when people are asking, he says, be prepared to share. And notice what, what you should be ready to share. Should you be ready to share the the whole history of the Christian faith or a theological treatise or an argument on the historical reliability of the Bible? No, what is it that we should share? Well, Peter tells us, it's at the end of verse 15. He says, to share the reason for the hope that you have. 
See, the assignment here is painfully simple. It isn't to bust out the doctrine that, you know, the assignment is to be ready and willing to talk about your hope in Christ. What is the reason for your confidence in Jesus? Your reason might seem like it's lame to you, but it's your reason, and so give it. You're not responsible to give C.S. Lewis's reason. You're not responsible to give Billy Graham's reason. You're not responsible to give Mother Teresa's reason. You're only responsible to give the reason for your hope. So you said, well, my life didn't make sense, but Jesus' way of life makes sense to me. Or I grew up in a stale religion. And when I was invited to a church that challenged me to actually walk with Jesus, it changed my life. And it went from something that I had to do to, to something that I get to do. Some of you could get into conversations that, that, that are going to go much deeper than this, and I understand that. Maybe it's with somebody of a different religion or somebody who's put a lot of thought into their, their beliefs about these things. And that's great when it happens. What an awesome faith adventure God will take you on. But you don't need to start there. Just start with the reason for your hope, your story. Well, that brings us to the, the how, number three. In Peter's own words, he says, with gentleness and respect. This simply describes an attitude of not being a know-it-all and and really giving dignity to the person that you're talking to. We're not called to be brash. We're not called to win all the arguments. We're not called to be condescending or defensive. When you're sharing your story, your attitude is as important as your words. That's why we've called it compassionate storyteller. In his great book, Telling a Better Story, Joshua Chachra talks about the the changing nature of apologetics in our modern time. Apologetics is just the branch of theology that is focused on sharing your faith or defending the faith. And he says this great quote. He says, once viewed as a tool to win debates, apologetics is now becoming more focused on generating productive conversations that open doors for people to consider the gospel. Rather than encouraging others to use what Charles Taylor refers to as conversation stoppers, for example, I have a three-line argument which shows that your position is absurd or impossible or totally immoral. Many apologists, he says, are emphasizing the need for Christians to become better listeners who seek to understand the person they are speaking with before making appeals. This enables us to meet people where they are and find points to affirm before finding points to to challenge. This more conversational back and forth approach is well suited to the fragmented era we live in because it recognizes the powerful impact that intellectual and cultural frameworks have on the way we and the person we're speaking with craft and perceive arguments. Even if you live in what used to be a culturally Christian area like the Midwest or the Bible Belt, you don't have to walk very far beyond your front door or your homepage to realize that people with the facts come to very different conclusions about life. Or as the Apostle Peter says, with gentleness and respect. This word witness or witnessing or, you know, can I, can I get a witness? You know, it's, it's fallen out of vogue a bit these days. But I love the word witness because that's exactly what we are. We are witnesses. And I I think of it in a courtroom context. In fact, Peter is uh, instructing us on how to give an answer or some translations say how to make a defense. It's actually a courtroom term and it brings to mind that you are a witness being called to the stand to offer your testimony based on what you have seen, heard, and experienced. You are not the prosecuting attorney. You are not a lawyer arguing the case. You are not the judge making the final verdict. You are a witness, 
and a witness just talks about their experience. Here's my story. And yes, conversations about faith can become sensitive. The fear of rejection and looking stupid naturally raises our defenses. It puts us on edge. And people can also just be rude or dismissive or even belligerent when we get into conversations like this. But Peter's command remains, be gentle and respectful. Why? Because in addition to your words, guys, we need to hear this so badly these days. In addition to your words, your attitude must also be consistent with the gospel. Your approach must convey the love and compassion of Christ, regardless of how insecure or defensive you feel on the inside. Now, I do wanna take a moment and give a little crash course on the gospel. What is it? Because frankly, it isn't just your story that's gonna bring someone to faith, it's his story, it's the gospel. The reason to tell your story is to point them to his story, because that's what changed you. You didn't change yourself, you were changed when your story collided with his ultimate story. And so what is the gospel? This word just means good news. What is the good news? How would you put it into words? Well, a lot of people would just say, well, you know, Jesus died 2,000 years ago, he came back to life, do you wanna accept Jesus into your heart? But, but if you step back from that quick phrase, those quick words, and think about them through the ears of someone who's unfamiliar with Christianity, that they make absolutely no sense. That they're like, well, so what if some dude died on a cross 2,000 years ago? What does that have to do with me? And what on earth does it mean to accept Jesus into my heart? Th thoroughly confusing. Or another approach is that you know, scare the, the hell out of people. One pastor I heard was asked a question, you know, when you're talking to someone about Jesus, where do you begin? He says, well, I start with hell. If they understand hell, they're going to understand the gospel. Actually, no. No. And it's not because we should avoid the topic of hell. Hell stands as a monument of the seriousness of sin before God. But the Bible doesn't start with hell. Paul doesn't start with hell. Jesus never starts with hell. But because you're a tough guy, you're gonna start with hell? Stop it. So what is the gospel? Well, at its core, the gospel is a message of restoration that repairs the relationship between us and God. There's a really beautiful word that the scriptures use repeatedly when talking about the gospel. It's the word reconciled. It means being brought back together. It means that your soul, it was created to be in harmony with God from the beginning. Because if you're reconciling, you're bringing something back to how it was supposed to be in the first place. And so, no, I don't wanna start with hell. I wanna start with how we were created to be in relationship with God. And here's the thing, at the deepest level, your soul and my soul, they know that's what they were created for. And at some deep level, they remember. Because when we're disconnected, there's this universal longing inside it, and we can ignore that longing, and we can get on the hamster wheel of life, and we can run, and we can run, and we can run, and, and we're never satisfied, and we think that that next chapter in life will satisfy us. When I finally graduate from high school, I'll be happy. When I finally get my degree, I'll be happy. When I finally get that first job, when I finally get married, when I finally get a house, when I finally get a kid, when I finally send the kid off to college, when I finally retire, then I'll be happy, and the hamster wheel spins and spins, and the next season didn't seem to satisfy the ache in your soul but the soul remembers what it was made for and no matter how wealthy you get no matter how great your friends are no matter how happy your family is no matter how successful your job is there's always going to be this kind of deep longing because nothing temporary can satisfy the eternal that God sealed in you when he designed you you are longing for a relationship with God for a reconnection with him but sin has separated us and God is holy and he's righteous and he's just. And you and I are not. 
And the only way that sinners can be reconnected with God is by wearing the robes of someone else's righteousness. And thankfully, God has made a way. See, the gospel isn't a deal about avoiding hell. It's the message of reconciliation that connects you back to what you long for the most, that place where you're short-circuiting, that sin that has separated you. Christ has made a way to reconnect you to God by coming to earth and dying and ultimately conquering death so that you have been separated can be made right again. God in his grace has justified you in Christ so that you can walk forward in right relationship with him. The story of Jesus is the story of forgiveness, which means we can never walk in arrogance. We can only walk in gratitude. That's the good news, the gospel. The bigger story is that a way has been made to reconcile your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's the story you're in, and that's the story you must tell. It's the only story in which people will find hope And it's the only story in which people will find a purpose in this life. As I said earlier, we're developing tools and resources to go with each of these roles. One of the resources is is just a list of discipleship questions that's gonna go along with the role that you can ask yourself as a means of self-reflection or that you could ask others in your life group or an accountability partner and check in with each other. But but I wanna give you today two discipleship questions for a compassionate storyteller. The first is, Where is God showing up in my story this week? Just get really current with it. Where is my story intersecting with the story of God this week? Second, who in my life needs to hear God's story through my story? Identify that person. Write down their name somewhere. Begin to pray for them and and tell your story. I, I would urge you to consider these questions this week. And as the Holy Spirit speaks, do what he says. Now, I'm gonna throw in this little tool for free at the end here, okay? I realize that there are all kinds of stories. Some of you, you maybe came to Christ later in your life and it was a radical turnaround. You can point to a moment. Uh, Others of you started off well and then you wandered away from God for a while and now you're kind of finding your way back. Others of you, you you know, you've kind of been a Christian as long as you can remember. There was no real moment that you can actually point to back there. That's all fine, it's okay. But one of my favorite constructs to think about this as we tell the story is the intersection of God's story and my story and this good news of restoration that we talked about. It's in the the words of the blind man after he was healed by Jesus. People start questioning him and he basically says, I don't know much, but here's what I know. I once was blind, now I see. I love the simplicity of it. And so this construct just says, I once was blank, but now I am blank. There's an old you, B.C., before Christ, and then you met Jesus at the cross, and now there's a new you, A.D. And when you're sharing your story with someone, listen, all they want to know is, does knowing Jesus Christ make a difference in a human life? Can a person be truly changed as a result of a relationship with God? And so that's what your story needs to answer. I once was, but now I. Now, for those of you who came to Christ at an early age, the the I once was thing doesn't necessarily work. You're probably too young. So, So think of it this way. What is the great difference in your life that Jesus is making? You may not have realized this until after you were saved. Maybe before Jesus, your life was all about fear. You're just afraid of everything, but you meet Christ and he gives you security. 
Or maybe you were all about impressing people, image management, but you met Christ and now you're focused on serving people instead of impressing them. Or maybe it was loneliness. You, you came out of a broken family and you felt isolated and you met Jesus and he adopted you into a whole new family where you feel like you are his child now. I, I don't know what yours is, but mine goes something like this. I once was, there's those words, I once was consumed with myself and my own success, academically, athletically, vocationally. I always had to be first to the point where I denied the existence of God and became my own God. But after a season of spiritual investigation, I became convinced that Jesus really did live and die and come back from the dead on my behalf. And I begged God to forgive me and to call the shots. And now, I once was, but now I have devoted my life to following the example of Jesus by serving others every day. And now my story is part of a much greater story. Will you be a compassionate storyteller? I love you guys.